Thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Friday. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like you said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills of Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Kochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Raina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, 
Mia St. John, Susan Muladi, Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, Jose Antonio Vargas, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to episode 172 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Robert Lopez. A little bit about Robert. He's the author of three novels, Part of the World, Cambi Bolongo, Mean River, which is named one of 25 important books of the decade by HTML Giant, All Back Full, and two story collections, Asunder and Good People. The Better Class of People was published, excuse me, I'll make it three. If you want to include that as a short story collection, it is called A Novel in Stories. A Better Class of People was published by Dezank Books in April of last year. Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere, which is his first nonfiction book, which will be the thrust of our conversation today, was published by $2 Radio on March 14th of this year, just a few days ago. His fiction, nonfiction, and poetry has appeared in dozens of publications, including Bomb, The Three Penny Review, Vice Magazine, New England Review, The Sun, and the Norton Anthology of Sudden Fiction, Latino. He teaches at Stony Brook University and has previously taught at Columbia University, the New School, Pratt Institute, and Syracuse University. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, New York, but not Park Slope, right? (laughs) Yeah, not Park Slope. That's right. You'll get that if you read the book. How are you today? I'm okay, Peter. How are you? Good, thanks. Pleasure to talk to you at any time, but especially just a few days after your publication. I was kind of asking before we started recording, but I know you're a veteran, but what's it like to have the book out in the world? Um, it's always a nice feeling to put a new book out in the world, uh, to hold the, the, the physical object in your hand and, and, and know that all the work that you put into it and all the work that the publisher put into it can finally, you know, reach some other people after, mm-hmm. you know, it being a very singular yeah. uh, experience for so long. And, and uh, it is gratifying and, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I, you know, I don't mind talking about it, mm-hmm. although it's not my best or favorite thing to do. Um, <laughs> but I, I do it, you know, it's one of those close your eyes and think of England moments. I, I prefer, okay. you know, ideally to just put the work out there and, mm-hmm. and, and have it kind of other people talk or write about it. But, I you know, it. I know that that it's uh, it's a good thing to do to to share thoughts. So looking forward to this and thank you for having me of course in um in the most recent book in dispatches from puerto nowhere you talk about you know this is later in the book but you talk about like you pretty much up until 22 now maybe you're exaggerating but maybe not up until 22 is pretty much just elvis and gretzky bios yeah yeah i didn't i wasn't um i wasn't a reader growing up at all i uh I wasn't a good student as far as getting grades. I just didn't care. Hmm. I, I was always curious about learning and curious about certain uh, subject matter, whether it be history or mathematics or something along those lines. But but I was never motivated to do well in school. And um, I didn't read books. I, I just wasn't something that interested me as a young person. Hmm. Um my mother read and she read kind of bestsellers and mysteries and, and uh, you know, those kind of books, but it never permeated down to me. And, and the only kind of reading that I may have done as a young person up until and through college 
well, were biographies of, of musicians and, mm-hmm. and and sports figures and, and things of that nature. But otherwise, books were none of my business until I graduated college and decided that writing was what I was going to do. And so I threw myself into reading um, as almost like a full-time occupation. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what, what flipped the switch there? Was it one moment? Was it a series of moments? Well, what flipped the switch was uh, in my senior year as an undergrad, uh, I studied uh, television uh, and film production sort of thing. And so we had a, our thesis was to produce a television show. Mm. And I always had it in the back of my head that I, I was a writer. I was going to be a writer, even though mm-hmm. I hadn't written anything and I hadn't read anything. <laughs> but somehow or another, I just, I don't know. I thought maybe that this was something I was going to do in some fashion. And I volunteered to write the script. Ah. And um, when I wrote the script, it was, we we cast professional actors in it. And it was quite a charge seeing these actors say my words. And so mm. I thought, okay, here we are. I'm done with it. Graduated college in May. So this summer, I'm going to write a screenplay. But instead of writing a screenplay, I wound up cracking open my lit anthology from college that I didn't read when I took it in in school. But I wound up reading all the stories and the poems in there. And instead of writing a screenplay, I wound up writing probably like 100 really bad poems Mm -hmm. and two really bad short stories. And uh, I was hooked. And that's where it all began for me. I started going to libraries every week and and bookstores. And I, I just it became sort of a, a fever. Mm. Well, I mean, it's really interesting in the book, you talk about a lot about Long Island and I don't, I feel like I know a lot about New York as, as a half, half Italian like yourself. I read a lot about, you know, the mafia and, sure. and not, not, not always the negative stories, but you know, I just, I know a lot about New York. I think a lot of people do. We feel like we do. Mm. But Long Island to me is, I, I, mean, I think the, I think friend Drescher and the nanny maybe was there and, you know, um, you know, I, I guess a little bit from like uh, the Great Gatsby, that kind of thing. But it, and you, you really describe it very well as like as a real conservative place, not necessarily like Christianity wise. Right. Um, so I just kind of wonder about like, I mean, was there a, a dearth of culture in some ways? Yeah, I mean, I've described it as a cultural wasteland. I mean, when I grew up um, and, and into my 20s, there just wasn't much at least around the the people I circulated with, my family, friends, uh, there wasn't much talk or or participation in anything cultural, mm. um, whether it be real music. I mean, there was some obviously music, right? There was, uh, you know, hair bands and things of that nature, um, <laughs> but no real cool. There, like, well, there's one little town on on Long Island called Huntington, and 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 there there was uh, a theater that played independent films. Um, and there, there had some music venues that attracted, you know, really good artists or, you know, jazz and things of that nature. Um, but it was so infrequently placed on Long Island and Huntington was a pain to get to from where I grew up. Hmm. So it just wasn't easily accessible. And, um, as a result of that, it just felt like a cultural wasteland. Mm. And, you know, most of the people I mixed with, I worked in restaurants on Long Island. And if you work in restaurants in New York City, most of your colleagues in the restaurants, particularly the wait staff and the bartenders, everybody's either an actor or a musician or a writer. You know, everybody's mm. creative in some way. But mm. on Long Island, that's not the case. The, the wait staff of all the restaurants, that none of them, it seems like, are creatives mm. uh, in, in that way. Um, or artistic or artists. And as a result of that, uh, I, I, it was a very kind of alienating place to to be hmm. because I did not have a deep connection with, with too many people at all. Yeah, so I don't recommend Long Island as a place <laughs> to live, although I have a few students out at Stony Brook who are quite exceptional and very, very talented and serious writers and artists and and so that is encouraging to me so maybe in certain pockets and in certain places it, it's changing yeah, yeah yeah well so like when you did kind of your retroactive when you did your retroactive reading and really maybe caught up on some things i mean it's so hackneyed to say like you know understated or 
or you know precise or efficient or you know kind of like Hemingway-esque Carver-esque like but in this book I definitely saw a lot of understated that was so powerful but I just kind of wonder maybe who you were inspired by are inspired by whether that was who you were reading back then or reading now or both well you know it's interesting you mentioned those two people because I've said in other interviews in the past that reading so I was reading all those poems and I was really enamored with a lot of the classic college poems that that you may have studied if you went to school in the late 80s or early 90s like Auden and Gerald Manley Hopkins and A. Hausman and you know a host of the canonical poets um Robert Frost Wallace Stevens and, and whatnot so um but when I read A Clean Well-Lighted Place in that anthology that I mentioned by Ernest Hemingway I that made me want to write a story. That was the first story that made me want to write a story. And so I did. I wrote a couple of stories mm. and um, wasn't sure, you know, what I was doing or what what anything career like I might have had in mind. I certainly didn't know anything about that. But then reading Raymond Carver, finding um, his work and, and, and in particular what we talk about when we talk about love, mm. that collection of stories. That made me want to be a writer. That that was my entry into, you know what? I think maybe this is something I could do too. So those two writers uh, were, were springboards for me. And, and there have been a host since. And I could say that writers like uh, Samuel Beckett, when I encountered Samuel Beckett in grad school, he changed the way I, I looked at narrative and language. Um, David Markson with his books, Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein's Mistress and, and, and Reader's Block that uh, blew my head open as well. Mm. And there have been a host of writers over the years who have uh, moved me to the desk and, yeah. and you know, pushed me to to want to do this kind of crazy and sometimes futile endeavor. <laughs> Are you a fan of Hemingway's novels or is it like short stories for you? For, uh, you know what, it's interesting. I've never really tried any of his novels. I've cracked yeah, open, same. you know. The Sun Also you know, Rises or A Farewell to Arms and nothing really grabbed me. I, I liked his stories better, but even, you know, there's a bunch of stories I like and there's a bunch I just don't do anything for me yeah. as well. I mean, it's one of those things where you take what you can and you leave the rest. And mm -hmm. uh, that's that's how I feel about Hemingway. That makes sense. I absolutely loved your, I assume, it's, I got to assume it's a, Oh man, I'm gonna say this word a lot. I don't know if I just say it correctly. The word is spelled P A E A N. Pain, pain. Oh yeah, a peon or payon. Yeah, it is peon. Okay, payon maybe. Yeah. A payon to uh, well, like a place with the menudo, not a pues, not a pues. Yes, that's exactly right. Oh, I, I, I did. I you know I I've employed those sorts of things in a number of places throughout my writerly life, <laughs> and I'm glad I'm really glad you picked up on that, Pete, because uh, awesome. it was put in there on purpose and. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that, that you picked it up. Oh, that was great. Of course, a great reference to Clean Well Lighted Place. As we get into, you know, to this book, you've obviously had a lot of great success with with fiction. And this is your this is your memoir. Uh, you know, I'm always in, I'm so interested when people have like multiple memoirs, you know. Right. Yeah. Man, I would love to have a life that important, you know. <laughs> right. No, I'm with you on that. <laughs> I feel like it's, it's a one time thing. So I wonder if it's a one time thing for you or what I mean is just like how self-flagellating was it how you know how tough was it how, was it cathartic is that kind of like oversimplifying it I mean to really write about some really personal things well I never really set out to write a memoir when I think of memoir I think you know mostly somebody recounting the the goings-on of their life where this happened and that happened and then this happened and that happened and um so you know for me this book started as the very first thing I wrote for it was the it was an essay, it was a braided essay mm -hmm. on the the word spick and where it came from and my experience, my experiences with that word growing up um, on Long Island and, and both having it used at me as a pejorative, but also me and some of my friends using it, it, it as a sort of uh, term of endearment. Mm -hmm. um, so that was what I uh, I started with with the book was just writing an essay on that it, it and the essay was was what I like about essays is that it was searching it was an investigation and it was a look not only within but without right so mm -hmm. pointing the camera in both directions 
so for me with memoir, it seems that a lot of the camera pointing is inside. Like this was my life mm -hmm. uh, where, so for me, it was more of trying to investigate these issues uh, and pointing the camera as much outside of myself as inside of myself. So I understand uh, the publisher calling it a memoir and I, mm -hmm. I, and I understand readers thinking of it as, as such. It certainly has a lot of memoiristic uh, elements, but to me, it, it also does other things that memoir doesn't do, like including history about Puerto Rico. And, sure. and um, you know, there's a lot of sideways stuff in the book. So I never really decided to write a memoir, certainly not about myself, because I'm with you, like <laughs> writers who write about themselves have more than one memoir say, I find that a really interesting strategy as a writer. I, I, for me, the subject matter was interesting and universal enough that I could write about it and write about myself all while looking at the world and at America in particular uh, at the same time. So I enjoy doing that. I don't, you know, if I write another nonfiction book, which is possible, I, I've mm. kicked around thoughts of doing the Italian side of my family mm. and, and writing a kind of similar book on that and, 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 and maybe taking a look at, say, depictions of family life uh, in Italians in, in media and film and television and such. Mm. Uh, but it was a good experience and I enjoyed it tremendously. It exercised different muscles, but I, I can't say that I, I have plans to do another memoir, sure. um, but I might well write another nonfiction book of some kind, perhaps. Okay. Well, so, I mean, you, you talk about how it's, it is, and I agree, it, it is universal in so many ways. Help me, I know she's a, a well-known author. Help me with the name, is, is it Eula Biss? That's correct, Eula Biss. Yeah, so she has a great blurb, uh, amongst many great blurbs for the book, and it's, quote, this book is an ode to what we don't know about ourselves. And, you know, the ourselves obviously includes you, but it's also everyone. Right. I mean, you define Puerto Nowhere as, like, everywhere. It's Canada to Chile. It's tropic. It's Arctic. There's no west-east boundaries. I wonder about Puerto Nowhere. I mean, is it um what is it is you know was that like the guiding kind of image for the book or did that kind of come up later yeah that came up later like so many things in the book came up later um but the idea of, of puerto nowhere is kind of wherever you are wherever you find yourself hmm. if you're disconnected from your past and your history and your family you're kind of in a no man's land no matter where you are so the place that you know, obviously, when people hear the word Puerto Rico, it's very rooted in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. of course. Uh, and then there's the diaspora that is spread out across the United States, mainly. Um, so for me, the idea that no matter where I go, it's still Puerto Nowhere. Everywhere mm -hmm. I go is, is, is a version of Puerto Nowhere. Um, so I, I thought that was a relatively interesting way of framing that mindset and that space that one occupies when you really feel like you, you don't belong to where you probably should have belonged. One of the quotes from the book is, quote, language is identity, it's history, it's everything. I mean, obviously you traffic in language. I just, I wonder about like, you know, there's no easy, there are no easy answers in this book. There maybe are, you know, but how you feel like writing about this was able to help you shed some light or not on ideas of erasure, assimilation, et cetera. Well, you know, it's funny because we just had the launch for the book in Brooklyn here at Greenlight Bookstore. And, um, one of the questions was like, you know, there, there are very few answers in the book. You know, the, the question was, how do you feel about that sort of thing? And, and it's, it's like, I don't, it's really grappling with the question mm -hmm. and grappling with the, the reality of assimilation and this erasure and then saying, okay, this is what happened. This is its effect on me. This is maybe why it happened. Mm -hmm. um, this is the end result. What was accomplished. And, and and 
and examining it from as many angles as possible without trying to um without trying to come to any hard conclusion about it yeah you know i think obviously erasing one's culture is a bad idea one shouldn't do it but i also think it's understandable given certain contextual realities mm. and uh yeah for me the questions are always more interesting than the answers mm-hmm. and that's why i i played around with the questions over and over again in the book. And, and I think there are very few answers in the book. It, w- it wouldn't have made sense, right? In the context of the book and the context of what you talk about, there are, there are no easy answers. It's not like it's a, in, in, you know, the end period we're done. No, I mean, it's an, it's an on- ongoing questions, right? It is an ongoing question. And I, I suppose that there are people out in the world who, who, who try to reclaim a heritage in a way and, and say, mm-hmm. Oh, I've had some sort of awakening and I, I feel more, connected to my ethnicity or my race or my religion or whatever but that's not you know i if i tried to present any of the information that way or any of the narrative that way or myself as that way it would it would be fraudulent because for me i I don't feel uh, a connection to it and i still don't this book didn't uh magically make me feel like i have more of a connection to puerto rico or puerto rican people or uh, my family um, it wasn't in any way like uh, cathartic or mm. or healing or it, it didn't do any of that work for me. It just examined the questions and the whys and the wherefores and looks at that void mm-hmm. uh, in hopefully as honest a fashion as I was able to do it. Definitely. I wonder, you know, you're talking about like publishing and, you know, given the name memoir, maybe it's not quite a memoir. I don't know if they tried to present it, whether it's the publishers or just yourself or, or writers like publish, you know, who like might be your literary analog. I, I thought a lot of like Sigrid Nunez. Um, yeah. Yeah. I actually, friend. you know, shouldn't admit to this, but I've never read Sigrid Nunez. I mean, I'm curious about a couple of books. Yeah. I've only read the one, which is the friend, you know, which is a great, great book. And it's, I mean, it's more, um, but it's just like the fact in non sequiturs is not the word for the book, but for your book, but the style of it, right. Where it's, you know, they're, they're obviously their dispatches. They're, I don't know right. how many different little chapters or dispatch. I'm going to ask you about that word in just a minute. But like, um, she really has a lot of profundity, like in, in almostly um, what, what are seemingly disconnected sentences, right? I mean, a lot of your dispatches are one sentence paragraphs. Right. And so that was just, that was just one of the things I was thinking about. Would you say that there's, there are writers similar to you or vice versa, or was that not, you know, just like, Hey, if it happens to be, it was an accident. Like you weren't going for that. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I like to think that the book is in conversation with a host of other books and, and there are writers who I really appreciate the work that they do. So when you, when it, when I started writing this book, I looked at a lot of nonfiction mm-hmm. to get a sense of what writers were doing. And I looked at writers like Vivian Gornick and, mm, okay. and uh, who, you know, didn't really do anything that I could rip off in, in such a easy way, but uh, certainly people like Maggie Nelson and Eula Biss and, and John Degada, um, Andrew Bonson. I mean, there are a host mm-hmm. of writers who look at subject matter kind of askew and, 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 and try to examine issues that go beyond um, oneself in the mm-hmm. world and one's own soap operas if you will Hmm. so yeah there are a lot of nonfiction books that i did read and appreciate and i've always liked working in distilled bursts those fragments and Mm -hmm. fractured i've taught a lot of fragment fractured narrative both in fiction and nonfiction. it's a it's a mode that i really appreciate and feel comfortable working with yeah how how did you so successfully do with you call it fractured narrative yeah I mean, how, how do you feel like you, you did that so successfully? Like, I mean, it, you know, in the hands of a lesser writer, it could obviously go astray. Well, you know, it could be t- completely seemingly unrelated. And, you know, right. I mean, did you do you feel like there were like, did you write it chronologically? I mean, not that, you know, like there's the way the book appeared. Is that the way you wrote it? Or was it this chapter, this dispatch? And I come back to this one. Well, you know, so originally the book started as a collection of braided essays. So the essays themselves were fractured and fragmented okay right but they were a series of 
essays that have beginnings and ends. Mm. Um, and talking with Eric of $2 Radio, he he uh, offered early in the process after we agreed to do the book together, he said, what if this is one book length essay? Mm. And uh, I said, oh, that's a really cool idea. Let me see if I can play around with it. And I wound up kind of blowing up the essays and and seeing how the threads could in the separate essays could connect to each other and mm -hmm. how I could spread them out over time and turn it into um, very short chapters or vignettes, if you will, uh, that became the dispatches mm -hmm. uh, over time. So it wasn't something that happened initially that the, the final form of the book took a solid after we agreed to do the book together we signed the contract it took a full year of working on the book to to arrive mm. at the final form mm. um, so it was an evolution uh that occurred uh over the course of a full year with the publisher and before that it was a series of braided essays that was fragmented in nature, but the each essay had a beginning and end. And so instead of that happening, there are no more ends of those essays. They got spread out over the course of the whole book. Oh, okay. Well, so, you know, since they are, they are dispatches, I want, you know, to me, that I kind of has like the connotation of like, you know, I don't know, talking about Hemingway or something like that. He's in, he's in Spain for like the, yep. the, the Spanish civil wars, you know, kind of like journalistic, kind of like dispassionate, but the subject in many ways it is you not like it's not wholly you wholly with the w right. but so what was that like to be dispassionate but also with you as one of if not the main character you know obviously this is the first nonfiction thing i've done uh and so writing about myself and what i actually think or what i actually went through what i actually saw was a uh, a different experience for me and putting my name in uh in the book and 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 referring to myself like that uh was a a, a new experience and but i have to say you know someone uh somebody asked you know it's so personal you know what do you think about that said, it doesn't bother me at all i mean i mm. i don't mind putting this out there into the world and i uh but at the same time i i also think it is a performance and even though everything i say in the book is what I think or believe at a particular time. Mm -hmm. uh, it also evolves. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if I've evolved as a writer and as a person, you know, if I tried to rewrite this book in five years or tried to write this book 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I think it would be much different. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that to me is also one of the interesting elements of, of this endeavor. Couple of really interesting lines. The first is literally the opening line of the book is quote, What I don't know about my family is almost everything. Writing about how, you know, on, on your dad's side of the family, Puerto Rico, Spain, Cuba, you know, it, it focuses on your your grandfather Sixto, Sixto. Yep. Right. And, you know, coming from Puerto Rico and then, you know, his it would have been what your maternal grandmother's side from Spain, from Cuba, and just basically right. saying everything was erased. You um I'm probably going to butcher the 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 Czech writer. Is it Milos? Yeah, yeah, Czesław Milos. So w the actual quote was: "When a writer is born into a family, the family is finished." And you write about you like the misquote better. Yeah. Right? So I wonder about how that quote, which is some of the effect of "When a writer is born into a family, it's the end of the family." Right. And in both of those, I read them as negatives. But you kind of like said, well, maybe there's a positive there. Maybe I'm oversimplifying, but this idea of like the family has like achieved something. The family has, you know, met its goal. So I wonder about how that quote kind of uh, informed your, informed this book. Well, you know, that, you know, as far as the, uh, that's most, that's a joke, right? That, you know, we birthed a writer, so, you know, there's no, no need to go on. You, you did everything you could do as a family line that's just a pure joke of course but the line was something that i appreciated when i first heard it and uh it really to me is is vital for a, a writer to you know the word fearless gets thrown around in, in a lot of different arenas um and of course nobody is uh, very few people are truly fearless the the hmm. 
you have to feel the fear, but just do it anyway. Mm. And I think as artists, as writers, if you're not risking that sort of emotional danger, if you're not risking everything on the page, then you're really compromising some essential element of the work. Mm. So that quote to me is was really important to give license to real freedom and authority to say whatever you need to say in service of the narrative or the truth of a piece to get it right. Because that's the only job of a writer is to get it as close to perfect and as close to true as you can. Mm. And if you're risking some sort of familial relationship or estrangement, then I think that's, you know, the choice you have to make. I think there's a way hmm. uh, to be an artist. And, and and that is to, in some ways, maybe uh, be reckless, but at the same time, you know, respecting people and trying to do right by whoever you feel like you have to do right by. Hmm. You know, at the beginning, I was talking about, you know, you have you have the dispatches and you talk about the the braided narrative and the, you know, sometimes the paragraphs are one sentence. You have some lines, some great lines. What in this life is permanent if everything is foreign? You know, the, you talk about evolving ideas of erasure and assimilation. Um, you know, obviously ideas of Puerto Rico and like it's uh, part of our country, but not. And, you know, have people seeing it as foreign. And then, of course, there's some great stuff about tennis. In the back and forth, I'm also a big fan of tennis. And you talk about, I guess it would have been your grandma. And and I remember the wording is earnest. That she was very earnest in saying, like, the only reason to learn Spanish, the only reason, kind of like, help me here, but the reason that she was able, that Spanish was helpful would be to, like, she identified somebody on, like, the subway. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the, the anecdote is that she heard two guys planning some sort of crime on a subway and then mm-hmm. ratted them out. So to the cops so that was why i should learn spanish so you could be on the lookout for criminals i guess i mean I, I no, yeah <laughs> and so you know obviously so much of the book is about is about this loss uh this assimilation this erasure which like you said wasn't your fault wasn't a conscious choice and you know you talk about the the racial slurs being thrown around you talked about that earlier with the idea of like the the family and keeping the stories going and having pride in in, in wherever you know we are from I wonder about just ideas of like of that erasure and how it does seem to be in involuntary in many ways. It wasn't a choice you had. It wasn't a choice maybe that your dad had. And kind of how that worked as as an erasure um, through assimilation. Yeah, I mean, you know, my father was born in Brooklyn in 1940. And, uh, you know, what he said was that he grew up and his parents spoke Spanish in the home but he would answer in English. And, you know, I don't know, you know, for instance, I mean, I don't know what they ate for dinner or lunch or breakfast growing up. I don't know what music they may have listened to in the house. I know my father was a a big fan of doo-wop. He was a doo-wop singer. Hmm. So by the time he was a teenager in like 1956, 57, 58, moving forward there, he was really into doo-wop acapella music. Hmm. But I don't know if, if my grandfather ever played him any sort of traditional Puerto Rican music or or any sort of Latin music at all. Um, so there was, I think, pretty early on a, a denial of the culture of forgetting uh, kind of an organizational forgetting of hmm. where my grandfather came from and perhaps where my grandmother's own parents came from being Cuba and Spain. Hmm. Uh so I, I don't think those cultures were fostered. My father didn't uh, ever speak of any of his family members. Um, he didn't uh, address, he, he, we never, eating Spanish foods of any kind, any kind of Latin foods, hmm. wasn't really a thing in, in my family at all. Uh, so, you know, all of the uh, the culture seem to have disappeared within one generation mm. uh, is me and my sister being the second generation. There was really nothing for us to 
to go on with it. Mm. Um, again, none of this occurred to me as a thing to investigate, as a thing to really think about and meditate on and perhaps write about until a few years ago. Mm. It was just the reality I grew up with. And uh, I was aware of it. It never presented itself as subject matter to me until just like five years ago. Wow. Your grandfather, I mean, was he called Sixto, like Americanized? Was it Sixto? Yeah, yeah. When, you know, when people, when my heart, the only other person I heard call them, uh, the only two sounds of that word I can remember is my grandmother calling him Sixto. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the priest who delivered uh, a mass, a funeral mass in 1987 when he died, I remember him calling him Sixto. Obviously, he didn't mm. have a uh, relationship with him. Mm. And he was probably, you know, uh, an Irish Catholic from, you know, New York mm. City. Uh, he called him Sixto. But my grandmother called him Sixto. And uh, so that was the only two times or the only two people I ever heard pronounce his name. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there's a parallel storyline where you, you write about him as a aspiring guitarist. And, you know... Um, in coming into New York, coming to New York via, I mean, I say via, it's not like he was there for a night, yeah, via Florida, you know, Calle Ocho, et cetera. Did, I mean, was this 100% made up about him? 85, like, you know what I mean? Like pretty 100 much. 100% made up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. as far as his journey to New York is 100% made up. Mm -hmm. He did have a guitar in his apartment mm -hmm. and he had the keyboard and I remember him playing the keyboard. I don't remember him playing the guitar, mm -hmm. but he did have it and I know he played um, maybe it's just something I don't remember. So I just, you know, use that as a springboard to think, okay, maybe he wanted to be a musician. Um, mm. so, but he didn't work as a professional musician, uh, that I know of. Right. So yeah. as far as how he got to Brooklyn from, uh, Puerto Rico, I have absolutely no idea. All of that mm. was invented. All of that was, uh, mm. fabricated. You, you write about him, um, you know, at the keyboard doing the speak softly love that was, I guess in the wake of the Godfather, my that was my one of my parents' wedding songs, nineteen seventy three. So there you go. Oh, there you go. Yeah, maybe I mean, he it's was a the beautiful, beautiful song, right? And yeah, and obviously the Godfather was something that was very important to to me growing up, to my father growing up, and and I think it's something that he shared with his father too, because I mm. I remember them talking about the Godfather, uh, hmm. and and you know certain themes of the film and certain references and such. So. Yeah, that was a real thing. Well, there's there's talk in the book of you you wanted to go to Puerto Rico for for research and you know all the above and the right. pandemic hit. I mean, is there is there is there information still to be gleaned? I mean, is there is there a trip in the in the offing? Is there a, you know ancestry.com? Are you going to be on with uh, Henry Louis Gates? You know, you know it's very funny because <laughs> in the conversation the other night, people asked that question and during a Q and A and. And I, I am curious about Ancestry.com or 23andMe or whatever that's right, called. Right, right. And then I referenced Henry Louis Gates and um, <laughs> said, I think it would be cool if he got into it. And yeah, I was planning to go to Puerto Rico and then the pandemic happened. And then I was hoping to get a grant or a fellowship and, and none of that happened to support that. And mm. that's a whole other story that I don't want to get into. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I uh, I don't know. I would like to go, but I also feel like I would want it to be tied into like maybe a a second edition of the book where I write mm -hmm. like a, a different chapter or a bunch yeah, of chapters yeah, about yeah. that experience. Um, I think that might be a cool thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I have thought about those issues and it bangs around in my head as a as a potential project in the future if certain things come together. Sure. Mr. Gates, if you're listening, get him on the show. Yeah. Get him on the show, man. Yep. Well, the the book sent me down so many uh, Wikipedia rabbit holes with the the tennis player Vitas Gerolitis and yep. and your your Italian um, the hometown where you're from where your family's from in Italy sounds like a beautiful place. Go there too. It huh? does sound like a beautiful place, and that's another place that I would like to go to. And you know, maybe uh, maybe somebody will send me there, and uh, there I can write about that. There you go. Yeah. There's a there's a lot about 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 tennis that comes up in the book and you make these incredible connections and they're not they're not overt, you know, connections between like even with your mom having some health issues and lack of memory and just the tennis and you know so sorry uh, um, about the loss of your friend 
uh, Pauly, you know, in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. You write about, you know, like, I mean, banal is not even the word, but the banality of it. I mean, it was a huge loss for you, obviously, to to lose your father in, 80, in 87 or so. No, uh, but my grandfather 90, was 87, 97 and my father me. was 97. Yeah, right. I mean, obviously, such a huge loss and the loss of your friend. You know, you hadn't known him so long, but a horrible way. And just those of us can identify, right? We've lost loved ones. Just, man, the, the freaking sun comes up again. What? What? Why is it? Why is the sun out today? Why? Why do I, mean, I have to? Yeah. Why do I have to eat today? You know? Yeah. So I wonder, like, I guess my overall question just about how you even link tennis and and fairly commonplace, you know, things you do on a, on a regular basis with some huge topics like your mother's health and your father passing away and, you know, the loss of, of your friend and even just like aging, you know, with yourself, like, yeah. tennis. where does tennis um, play in there as a metaphor? I mean, a lot of, I mean, David Foster Wallace did it. It's been done, but you have such an interesting spin and in, in, on, on, the, on the communities that you found in tennis as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I think initially I, I, I picked out tennis because it's something I'm passionate about, something I love, something that I uh, I engage with quite a lot. And I wanted to write about tennis uh, because I was writing about all these family um, matters and, and, you know, the history, the assimilation, the lack of family history and culture and connection to it. Uh, whereas with tennis is something I do know, so, mm. uh, something I do have a connection too and, and i have connection to people there so it seemed to me like a good juxtaposition mm. once i start i just started it because i wanted to write about tennis mm. and then over the course of time it occurred to me that it served as a good relief and a good counterpoint to mm. the family stuff to bring in the tennis stuff because it, it, de it demonstrated connection it demonstrated uh other examples of people who are from all different walks of life and ethnicities mm. and races and and their own stories. I, I, I used one or two of them in the book of, mm -hmm. of a similar kind of uh, assimilation and erasure. So I, I, you know, initially it was just kind of a, uh, I wanted to talk about tennis and that was the be all and end all. But then mm. kind of subsequent to that, I found its relevancy and how it connects to mm. the book. It, and so even the same thing with with my my friend Polly, who was murdered by a policeman in um, in Wisconsin. I, I just felt like, OK, I, I've got to talk about Polly somehow because it's important to me. And I wrote a piece uh, and all of that was true, like playing tennis the first time after Polly died. It felt weird to me mm -hmm. to be out there playing tennis. And so but it, it didn't connect to the the Puerto Rico stuff, if you will, until I really thought about it. So, okay, how can I make this germane to the book? And and then the idea, because when people talk about cops killing people in this country, they often make the wrongheaded uh, assumption. And I've heard this from many people, oh, that cops kill black people. Um, but cops actually kill more white people than they do black people. Obviously the percentage is, right, percentage. is screwed up. The, the large proportion you know, too many black people get arrested and incarcerated and it's a massive problem and it's a disaster and it's and it's a shameful element of, of this disaster of a country. Um, but the truth is the cops kill everybody mm. and the, they really don't care too much who you are. Uh, they will brutalize and kill you. And so thinking about my place and how I'm viewed, because so much of the book mm grapples with the idea that oh wow people look at me a certain way given my um my name and my complexion and, and uh you know everything else i suppose uh my, my friend sam who you know is a small character if you will in the book he's when we were driving through georgia he said, you know, you're going to get us killed. Like some cop is going to pull over. They're going to see you and we're going to get shot. And, uh, you know, it's gallows humor to deal with mm. you know, the, the horrors of the country. Uh, but so it made me think, oh, what would cops? You know, I've been stopped a couple of times by cops in, in cars for speeding or whatever. But, you know, nothing ever happened. Mm. Um, but, you know, obviously that obviously is something that, millions of people get pulled over by police and, and, and everything goes smoothly. 
of course, the, the news stories of cops killing people happen all too frequently mm. for all different reasons. But again, I found ways to make it germane to the book. And uh, we found instances of, of Puerto Ricans being killed by cops in the mm. 50s and news articles on that. So it was a way to talk about all these issues. So mm-hmm. discovering those connections was one of the, the greatest the greatest pleasures and I, I hesitate to use the word pleasure of course because mm-hmm. there's so many dark topics here but in making mm-hmm. this an actual book a coherent book that is of a piece that even though some of the things seem disparate mm-hmm. they're they're not they are all connected well yeah and there's, i mean it's, it's a great pleasure for the reader again pleasure maybe not the right term but pleasure for right. the reader to, to find all these links back to your tennis 111 miles per hour on your serve yeah i could pump it up there okay dang I mean, I don't know exactly, but I feel like when you watch the pros, they're not that much higher. Well, I mean, the real, like, so the, the pros, the real great pros can get it up into, like, the 130s. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, the 130s. Somebody might hit 140 every so often. Yeah. Um. So, like, 105 or 110 is a, is a far cry from that. Sure. But uh, it's, it's a pretty, it's a, you know, it comes in hot a little bit sometimes. And I'm not trying to I, return I, that. Well, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I get to play with some people who are pretty good, and and I face some guys who serve probably a buck twenty or mm. a buck twenty five, and yeah, there is tough to get a racket on sometimes. <laughs> I'm, uh, I mean, it's a great t- tennis has been a great COVID sport, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it really is, and uh, it was uh, something that was after being inactive during COVID for so long during lockdown. When we were finally able to get back on the court again, it, it was a real blessing. I feel like I want to find out, find my community. I mean, I've played tennis on and off. I played my senior high school. I'd, you know, play with my brother. It's a great bonding thing. I love, feel like I reading this book. I want to get back into it, you know? I think you uh, should. Right. And you talk about, you know, some of your friends. Uh, sorry, remind me of his name. He comes from a Chinese family, but speaks Spanish very well. You know, his family. Uh, was yeah, Dominican, his name you know. is Carrie Eng. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he uh, grew up in, in, in an agrarian city in, in China. And like many members of his family, when when that industry has struggled, uh, made their way elsewhere in the world. And so many of them went to Latin America, all over Latin America. Mm-hmm. He's got relatives in Mexico and, and in, in the Dominican. And he grew up uh, largely in Puerto Rico. He went to boarding school there mm-hmm. that spoke English primarily, but he did learn Spanish. And yeah. so... Uh, you know, I, I found that to be both uh, comical and uh, entertaining and beautiful. That right? here's this Chinese man speaking Spanish, and I am a, a Puerto Rican guy who doesn't. Hmm. So you know, throughout the book, there, I mean, there's dis- destructive word. You use the word destructive, annihilation. In you know, with relation to assimilation, we talked about how it wasn't necessarily, or that you know of, wasn't necessarily. A lot of conscious choices maybe or maybe just one right but there's also a lot that i found so interesting about like you being second second generation you'd say or you know the next generation and you know i, I feel this having creature comforts right yeah you write for a living not that that's easy <laughs> you know but you didn't have you don't have to do the you know maybe the physical labor of previous generations you you go to salt lake city for conferences and you know, they, they they leave you things and they make it nice for you, even though they got the ants, right? Um, right. But just like, is, is guilt the right word? I mean, is there a sense of like, is that kind of what you were exploring there? Like, almost like guilt, like, man, I got it easy or easier compared to previous generations? Because I feel that. Yeah, you know, it's not, it's not, I don't feel a guilt. You know, maybe that speaks to some sort of sociopathic uh, tendency. In no, me, no, but, no, 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 no. Yeah. It's not a guilt that I feel at all, but but it is a realization that, that, you know, my grandfather was a blue collar working man and who mm-hmm. used his muscles and my father was the same. And, uh, you know, I did, you know, I worked as a waiter for many years um, of my life. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I was, you know, that's not quite the same as what they did, but it, it's an, a, a taxing physical job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for a long, long time, you know, up until probably my early thirties, uh, before I could actually teach and make a living from teaching. But uh, 
yeah so it's not guilt but it is a recognition yeah of the things that they did to make their children's lives better and uh and it's an appreciation of that and respecting that as a uh, as their accomplishment hmm and i ruptured my achilles tendon uh playing hoops Oh, it, was a, it was a game-winning shot, but, you know, who's counting? Um, <laughs> no one was in five feet of me. I don't jump that high, but, you know, rupture the Achilles. And I just think of, like, man, like, my grandpa, my great-grandpa, they they would have never walked again, right? Or they would have, you know, they would have walked with a huge limp their whole the rest life. Of their life right? after that. Yeah, yeah. Right? Without, yeah. Those kind you of know, things about these, future generations, yeah. Right, yeah. You know, we, we have it easier in a great many number of ways, and, and – uh but it's not our fault, right? But it's it's not our I mean, recognition, like you uh, said. Yeah, it's just happenstance of when we were born. The book is, um, you know, because it's in, in so many places so understated, like we talked about. But it's just there's so much power in that understatement. And the ending of the book is is almost like a. I always get confused if downhill or uphill is a good thing when people say like, "Oh, it's all downhill from here," but it's right. kind of you know, it's 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 very unemotional, but it's so powerful, without giving away the ending, right? It right. just it kind of unfurls, right? And so, yeah. it, you know, just overall, just a a huge congratulations again on on a book that is uh, it's raw. It it speaks to a lot of what people will will appreciate, whether it's cultural assimilation, whether it's you know, you had some. I wanted to finish maybe with one image that was so powerful for me. Was talking about your grandpa and how he would eat so slowly, right? And you you connect that to like man, like. I ate so fast. I I understand that. Me personally, uh-huh. I, did, I I wish I would have. You know, I wish I could have. I wish I would have maybe taken some time. And and where was it? You're from? What? Tell me about Mayaguez, Maya right? The city and and how you got here. And I think that rings true. I know that rings true for me and rings true for so many people. So it, it's the book is so powerful because of the honesty, because of the understatement. And so I just want to you know congratulate you again. I want to tell people listening like buy this dang book. You uh you, you shouted out um you know a couple of bookstores but any particular places you're like hey buy this here whether online or in person. Well, of course I I always advocate like all the writers do like your favorite independent bookstore your local independent bookstore and uh, if you want to do it online bookshop.org okay uh, is a great uh, venue that's not Amazon but of course you know I use Amazon still and it's yeah, yeah, yeah. a wonderful service. And if that's your way to get the book, then I say any way you can get it. I appreciate it very much. I'm very grateful. There you, there you go. I know you're kind of like taking a deep breath and, you know, you're, you're done with it and you're out in the world. Any future projects? You're kind of like, ah, I'm going to wait a little bit on that. I'm like, yeah, it's, I'm in a little holding pattern and a wait and see of what's going to be next for me. There you go. Again, so awesome to talk to you. Um, you know, in, in the show notes for this, I'll, I actually do have a bookshop.org link to buy the book and some of the great reviews. And, um, Thanks so much for taking the time and, and I wish you great luck in the future. Thank you very much, Pete. I really appreciate all the smart questions and the conversation. It was really great. Thanks so much for listening to episode 172 with Robert Lopez. What a pleasure to speak to him and a continued good luck to him in his career. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Please ask for it by name using Alexa. You can find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops by Matt Whiteauer, and both songs are used through ArchesAudio.com. Please tune in for episode 173 and 174, two episodes dropping on March 28th. 
celebrating pub days for Rachel Heng and Allegra Hyde. Rachel Heng is the author of the novels The Great Reclamation, which is her new one, and Suicide Club, which has been translated into 10 languages worldwide and won the Gladstone Library Writer in Residence Award. Her short fiction has been recognized by anthologies including Best American Short Stories, The Pushcart Prize, Best Small Fictions, and Best New Singaporean Short Stories. Allegra Hyde is a recipient of three Pushcart Prizes and author of Eleutheria, named a Best Book of 2022 by The New Yorker. She's also the author of the story collection Of This New World, which won the John Simmons Short Fiction Award in her short second short story collection, The Last Catastrophe is the new one. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Robert Lopez, whose work, like Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere, gives you chills at will. Thank you.